pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. 水煮肉片. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Hi, y'all. Do you like my American accent? No? It's okay. Welcome back for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David G. Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And as always, if this is your first time listening, let me explain to you why my podcast has its amazing but strange name. I'm originally from Portugal, and I've been living in Washington, D.C. for the last nine years. And the name of the podcast refers to two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience, and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. I'll be asking my guests if they've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes. Every episode I will have a guest and we'll talk about everything related to food, not necessarily ingredients or dishes, but how through food we can help communities, the success of small business owners, the fascinating stories that we remember growing up with our families sitting around a table, and even what's the best breakfast ever, and much more. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast on all the platforms you have access to, Follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes and follow the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you want to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. Also, I want to mention that some interviews were recorded in a different microphone, so sometimes if the interview has a different sound, that's the reason. I hope you enjoy listening to every episode and don't forget I'm Portuguese, so if something doesn't sound exactly right, just dance a little bit, sit down, smile and pretend that you understand. My guest today enlightens her readers about the good things Washington, D.C. has to offer. For the last 10 years, she has been the food editor for The Washingtonian. The magazine was founded in 1965, and it's read each month by more than 400,000 people. She's a D.C. native, an enthusiastic cook, a Nationals fan for the baseball people out there, and she has a cutest dog named Soto. Anna Spiegel, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Having me. I'm very good. Two important questions. We're going to start right away. Right. Have you ever been to Portugal? I have not. It was on my list of places to go. And we actually had a trip kind of in the works, but then, you know, the world happened. So I had a feeling if I was from Liechtenstein, everybody would say it's on my list as well. I'm not so yes, sure, but okay. <laughs> do you know any Portuguese words? Porto or port? <laughs> port, port. There you go. Okay, that counts. There you go. Uh, not a lot of guests know, so that I, I take it. Um, when, because uh, this part, Everybody knows since I'm from Portugal, I always, I'm almost, almost like a Portuguese ambassador in the United States. Okay. When you think about uh, Portugal, what kind of foods do you think about? You well, I know like- the, um, the tin seafood was having a moment and, you know, the Portuguese have beautiful tin fish and shellfish. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think of a lot of fresh seafood. I think of beautiful wines, not, not just port, but, you know, a wide variety of wines. And, you know, I would, again, I wish I had been able to travel there. I could probably tell you more. You passed the test already, so it's fine. I'm happy. Uh, did you always like to cook? I did. I grew up in a very um, kind of foodie family. Um, I'm an only child. And so my parents, when they went out to restaurants, they would tend to take me and I got to try a lot of things um, starting at an early age, which really kind of informed my love for food down the line. You went to the French Culinary Institute in New York, right? Yes. What was your goal when you started attending the Institute? Was there a time that you want to be a professional chef or was always journalism your ultimate goal? Yeah, you know, I started cooking um, after college. I moved to a little island called St. John. It's the smallest of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, And I was working for a newspaper there. 
But, you know, as a second job, I started bartending, which led to a job as just kind of as a line cook at a finer dining Italian restaurant. I worked with a great chef there. He had gone to CIA and moved down to the islands. And so, you know, for a while, I thought maybe, you know, I would want to pursue a career as a, as a chef, but I was also writing at the same time. And so when I went to New York, I kind of wanted to find out which path to take. Um, so I went to culinary school, but I think FCI at the time, it was a six-month program, kind of like an intensive program. And, you know, people came out of it going right into restaurant kitchens and people came out of it going to work for magazines. Um, it's kind of wide range. So that's where I kind of landed there. Do you ever have that feeling, what if? Yes, absolutely. I do, you know, I miss cooking in kitchens. I cook a decent amount at home, but, you know, I think it would have been a very fulfilling career path. Do you also think for the future, perhaps one day have something your own or you're not quite there yet? I don't know. You know, I think like right now with the way that the world is, everything is so uncertain that even, you know, and I think seeing the way it is so hard to be a business owner anytime and now is I think particularly difficult. Um, but you know, I'm so grateful that so many talented people have pursued it. Um, so for right now, you know, kind of happy where I am, but mm -hmm. enjoying other people's talents and work. Yeah. Like I mentioned, you work for the Washingtonian, which is a very, very popular uh, magazine in the DC area. Can you talk a little bit about a little bit how is your basically day-to-day -day looks like? How do you decide which restaurant stories or food stories you're going to highlight? Yeah, absolutely. Do you want me to talk more about pre-pandemic or currently just right now? I mean, they're both very interesting because I'm sure but they're both different. So you can talk about both. That's absolutely fine. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, I think Washingtonian, especially the food section, you know, in, for the print publication, we're known for two big food issues a year, which is our 100 best restaurants, mm -hmm. definitely the biggest. Um, and then our uh, great places to eat cheap, which is, you know, a review of places you can go out um, to eat and have a wonderful meal for $25 less per person. So for those big food issues, you know, we take, we take into account like a huge number of restaurants. I think one thing that people, one misconception is that, oh, you know, we only look at like people who advertise or, oh, we don't go, you know, we look at, we include restaurants that we've been to two years ago. And when the reality is we start the process fresh every year. So for a hundred best restaurants, we visit and review close to like 300 restaurants um, over the course of a year. Uh, it could be new places. It can be places that have been around for 45 years. It can be places that have been around, but maybe weren't on our radar for whatever reason. And, and places that were on the list last year. So it's a lot of, it's a wonderful job. It's a wonderful opportunity to really like scour a large swath of the city. So we cover DC, Maryland, and Virginia, and really, you know, kind of get to know the dining community again, fresh every year. Um, so that's kind of one of our biggest, our biggest projects that, you know, day to day, we'll be going out to eat lunch, dinner, sometimes two lunches, sometimes two dinners, depending on how our deadlines are working. Yeah. And then I think, you know, we, we cover online, you know, a lot of the news, the dining scene, the city, the trends, interviews with chefs, you know, what's going on. And I think during the pandemic, you know, we're not eating, reviewing restaurants currently. And actually, that's my colleague, Ann Lumper, is a food critic. So if, if we were, you know, she'll be doing that um, mostly. And, you know, I think we're just trying to cover what's happening because everything is changing so fast in the restaurant world, whether it's reopening, whether it's restaurants have had to shift their business models mm -hmm. completely almost like every two weeks for the past couple months. So it's really keeping up with that and, um, and showcasing what they're doing. When you mentioned about going to, you said almost 300 restaurants. 
So what's the criterion? Because for instance, if you are, which is not the case, but you know, if you were like, a, if you were a Michelin guide kind of judge, right? You go and yeah. you're going to see things that a normal person, I guess, wouldn't see it. What's the main focus that you have when you go to these local businesses, these local restaurants? Yeah, I think, you know, I think for 100 best restaurants, there's a little more focus on the all-encompassing experience. So it's, you know, it's, it's obviously the food, but it's also service, beverage lists, things of that sort. But I think no matter what the story is, I think, you know, what we really look for is, is the restaurant doing what it's set out to accomplish. So if you go to, you know, what you think of as a Michelin star restaurant, you know, if the wine list isn't up to par, the service isn't, you know, exact, then that's one thing. But if you go to a different style, if you go to Korean barbecue, you're going to be looking for something totally different. Or if you go to, you know, like a carry out roti shop, you're going to be, you know, you're not going to put as much emphasis on, you know, the service for those kind of things. So mm-hmm. you know, I think just understanding what the restaurant is and what the restaurant's trying to do and, and does it serve its population well. I see people think I complain a lot and I'm going to say they are 20% true maybe. <laughs> One of the things for me, and I think the service is very different, European service and American service. I'm not saying it's better or worse. I just think it's very clearly very different. The biggest struggle I find sometimes at restaurants, and I'm not so sure if you agree or not, is that most of the times I'm more disappointed with the service than I'm more disappointed with the food. I don't know if you think it's a fair assessment, but I just don't know how you fix that in a way. For at least in my view, and I'm not picky when I go to a restaurant, because again, unless you go to a Michelin star restaurant, yes. you're going to expect some sort of standards. But there's just something about the service that sometimes for me lacks something. I don't know what that something is. I know that in Portugal, for instance, there's a lot of you know, high school diploma degrees that actually offers a restaurant. Mm-hmm. So you study for three years, you, you study, it's called restaurant and bar. And people might think yeah. it's weird. So we're going to study and you study front of the house, back of the house. So most of, I would say nowadays, 85% of people that are uh, even just a waiter in Portugal, they went to a culinary institute for a few years. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I'm not sure if you agree with what I'm saying, but that's always my struggle, uh, not to just in DC area, mm-hmm. restaurants in general, in the US. I mean, I yeah. have that service in Europe as well, but there's just something about it. I'm not so sure what it is. I think it's a different, yeah, I used to live in Switzerland um, when I was younger, I was a kid, but I still, you know, I've been back to, to Europe many times. And I think that, you know, often it's also a lot of, traditionally in Europe, it was treated as a profession and a like front of house profession, you would even go into that profession for your entire career until you retire, where often in the United States for a long time, restaurant jobs and restaurant jobs still for many are a stop along the way to something else where you are, you know, working while you're working to be an actor or you want to do something else. I mean, now I think that the, the dining boom has happened in the United States, it's happened in DC. You see a lot more people who are career bartenders, career waiters, career chefs, you know, but I also think the difference is the model. I mean, the U.S. model with the tipping makes it so much more difficult in terms of to just rely on it and to make it a career. Whereas you, I mean, in Europe, I mean, obviously it varies widely, but with salaried pay, then you know it's just it's just kind of a different game. It is. I, I actually agree. So for for folks that are listening to this, how would you describe nowadays the food scene in Washington, D.C.? And do you think that have been a lot of innovation lately? Around the time that the D.C. dining scene was really booming. Um, and I think you can credit that a lot to these small, independent, um, ambitious restaurants, places like 
you know, the Rose's Luxuries and the Bad Saints and the Dabneys and the, you know, there's so many more, but places that were really getting on the national map because they were, you know, offering something totally different. And I think that, you know, obviously DC has had that not entirely accurate, stereotypical reputation as a steakhouse town. And I think there were, you know, growing up here um, and going out to eat, you know, with my parents, there were already pioneering independent restaurants like Restaurant Nora, Cash and Z Place from Ann Cash and uh, Germain's, you know, Todd Gray's Equinox, ton of Vidalia, places like that. There are tons of independent restaurants. It was just kind of a different, it was a different generation for sure. Yeah. But I think that, you know, also seeing the fact that those places are still, some of those places are still alive and well, and some of those chefs are still thriving. You know, I know Ann Cashin still in the kitchen cooking every day at uh, Johnny's Half Show before the pandemic. You know, it, it's great to see both like the innovations, but also see that the backbone of this culinary reputation in the city um, has remained intact. Yeah. So since you've been in your position, do you feel that the food scene has become more and more diverse? And if so, why do you think that is? Yeah, I think that in, in you mean a diverse in terms of different cuisines. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that DC has always already always had a wonderfully diverse culinary scene because of its reputation as an international city. You know, you've always had incredible um, Vietnamese food in the Eden Center. You've always had wonderful Ethiopian restaurants. You have fantastic Thai restaurants. I think what you see more now is an embrace of a whole range of cuisines, whether it's Burmese or Filipino or um, Senegalese food, you know, across the board, both everything from mid-range restaurants to finer dining to kind of the more, you know, wallet-friendly places you discover. I think you see a lot of variety in all those different categories. Mm -hmm. Um, DC, it's, you know, the demographics in DC is very diverse as well, right? Mm -hmm. Do you feel it's represent it's it's restaurants represent that diversity? And in your position at the Washingtonia, how do you try to highlight that? Um, I think it depends what you're looking for in terms of diversity. I think there's been a lot of conversations recently about, you know, the the lack of black owned restaurants, for example, um, and, or lack of, you know, especially in the finer dining section in a city that is, you know, predominantly black and how that, you know how that's an issue. And I think that's, it's a systemic issue mm -hmm. um, in terms of access to capital, fundraising, you know, who landlords want to give their spaces to. Yeah. Um, I do think, you know, DC's dining scene is diverse, but I think you have to kind of, it depends what you are looking for. Yeah. Do you think it's changing? I think, you know, I think right now, no one, I couldn't guess where things are going in terms of access to spaces, especially because of the pandemic, because mm -hmm. of the way that most landlords will not forgive rent, even if a restaurant is closed while employees are sick with COVID or, you know, while the government hopefully, you know, knock on wood does not issue another shutdown. But I think you will find the landscape will look entirely different um, in a few months. When it comes to restaurants in DC, what trends do you see and where do you see the restaurant scene headed in a post-pandemic world? There are, I mean, I think that one of the wonderful things about the restaurant industry is that it's so innovative. I mean, I don't know any other industry where if you had to change your business model every couple of weeks that you'd still be doing as well as, you know, as much as, as well as all these places can. You know, I think obviously there's a big trend towards outdoor seating. Um, I don't think that's going to go away. I think people are much more comfortable outdoors. There's a big trend towards takeout. 
and delivery. I don't think you're going to see that go away. I think there's also a lot of emphasis on um, trying to deliver the same caliber of experience as you talk about service, but with less service. So yeah. you look at restaurants, not even fancy restaurants, but you know, across the board offering kind of set meals and pre-fix options. And people can decide ahead of time, hey, I want this, you know, three-course moderate prefix for $45. Mm-hmm. Order it online, you maybe pay for it online in advance. You go and you have it delivered. Um, there's not going to be that same table side manner where someone's explaining to you what the you know, the fish of the day is, but you can kind of learn online and you can kind of get these experiences in a different kind of format than before. Yeah. Do you think businesses like food trucks, which is per se something grab and go, basically, do you think there will be, I mean, it's a little difficult, I know, to kind of predict what's going to happen because, Mm -hmm. but do you think like business like that, uh, that people can get good quality foods and don't have the whole hassle, you know, to go call and go get into the city to different places? Do you think Places like or things like food trucks will be a more trendy thing, or that's not necessarily true. I think food trucks. I mean, food trucks might. I think one food trucks were first popular in the kind of the down in DC, like we knew about ten years ago in the downtown areas that were really heavy on chains. They didn't really have a lot of interesting, fun, cool restaurants. I think it depends whether people flock back to offices because I think a lot of the food truck business did revolve around that offices mm-hmm. and things of that sort. But I do think you will see a lot more of that style of service. Um, I think like food halls are also going to be, you know, you see a lot of food halls slated to open soon where, you know, a lot of independent, um, ambitious businesses will be able to have a small footprint um, and enjoy kind of that kind of setting where people can kind of come up and grab and go. Um, I also think you'll see a lot of ghost kitchens, which are, you know, the carryout only model for restaurants. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can have multiple ghost kitchens within a restaurant. So you can have, you know, for example, Coconut Club, which is a Hawaiian restaurant near Union Market. They're doing a like kind of like a New England style sub shop ghost kitchen out of their restaurant. Um, and people have been really loving it, according to the chef, and really, you know, kind of gravitating towards the fact that they can, especially if they're in the neighborhood, go get, you know, spam masubi one day and like a great Italian cold cut sub, the nub, cold cut sub, the national. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely it's going to be interesting to see what businesses they, What's, which direction they're going to. So um, I guess we'll see. So shifting a little bit the conversation, we're going to our round of questions and I ask every single guest, what was your first memory of taste? You know, I, don't, I, should, be, I should know this question. I was thinking I remember really enjoying, my mom used to make, my parents love sourdough bread. And I remember my mom used to make me peanut butter jelly on sourdough. And that's a very, sourdough is a very distinct taste. I think like another friend's mom wrote over like, you know, regular ones. And I was like, this doesn't taste quite the same. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a good answer or not. Let me, it let is. Think. No, that's a good, that's a great answer. That's fine. Um, what's the most underrated ingredient for you? I love dill. So I always have dill in the fridge. I add it to salads. I love it on tuna salad, making kind of like a, those flavors, like, you know, whether you want to throw it in a creamy pasta. It's one of those things. I know some people don't love it, but. I always have it on hand. An overrated ingredient. Would it have to be a single ingredient or a dish? I mean, let's go for a dish. You know, it can be different. That's fine. So this is kind of weird, but I don't love breakfast sandwiches. I like eggs. I love everything that goes into breakfast sandwiches, but the textural egg sandwich thing is not my favorite. So if someone reads a piece of you from the Washingtonian talking about breakfast sandwiches, and we understand now <laughs> no, why. I can tell it, you know, I appreciate them. Um, and I also like, you know, most people love them. I think it's just for me, it's a textural thing. Okay. If you could choose the best breakfast ever that you can have. Best breakfast ever. Let's see. I mean, 
hard to go along wrong with a, a great lox bagel and a you know really delicious mimosa. Mm-hmm. Anything or any kind of Mexican breakfast when you talk about chilaquiles, huevos rancheros, anything of that sort. What's the I call the WTF combination? What's the strangest combination that someone might do, or you think you know you know someone that they do that and you're like I just cannot do it. I did have one time a chef was experimenting with a gorgonzola ice cream, like a savory gorgonzola ice cream, I think for some sort of carpaccio that didn't quite do it. <laughs> that, went, that, that went too far. I was like, no, probably not. Uh, so the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens or Breaking Dishes. So mm-hmm. this is two separate Portuguese quotes. Turning chickens mm-hmm. means someone that, that has a lot of experience doing mm-hmm. something. And breaking dishes means someone that succeeds expectations in life. Okay. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? Um, I want to, you know, I don't, this is not meant to say I've, I've been succeeding in my career, but I've been working both in, you know, food journalism and cooking for, for a while with the path of this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe the first, but I'm not exactly sure. Okay. That's fine. To wrap up here, the conversation, you know, what's, what's next for you at the Washingtonian, you know, uh, after probably after all of this is over. Hopefully it will go be soon. What's next for you? You know, where people can find you, your pieces and all of that. So just, as we say in Portugal, uh, other Portuguese quotes, just sell your fish. Every time you hear someone saying sell your fish, that means yeah. talk about yourself a little bit. So where people can find you and all of that. Yeah, well, right after I get, uh, I get off the podcast, I'm going to start putting up a story for tomorrow about a new wine shop. So we're working hard at the Washingtonian, both online and, and for the print version. We just came out with our... Um, August issue and it, it looks beautiful. Um, so, you know, just kind of keeping on covering what's happening in the Washington food scene. And there's so much happening with restaurants reopening and trying to adapt to their new models. And, you know, I'm really lucky to cover it all. So definitely find me, find me on Twitter under Anna Speaks, follow me at washingtonian.com. And yeah, I think that's it. Perfect. Anna, thank you so much for coming in. I know this is crazy times right now, so oh, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Say hi to Soto. Uh, and <laughs> and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the episode. Today, Embassy Chef's Corner is all about me. A little creepy, right? A lot of people ask me why and how did I become a chef. So here he goes. Well, my mom, she's a horrible cook. So someone had to save the family from her cooking techniques. Two shows has inspired me to be a chef. The Two Fat Ladies and Ready, Steady, Cook. So go check those out because they're awesome. First, I did three years of culinary school, then I decided to be a rebel and I studied accounting for one year, and that was as exciting as it sounds, so I went back to culinary school for two more years. I finished my culinary school in February 2011, and six months later, I moved to Washington, D.C. From 2011-2015, I was executive chef at the Portuguese Embassy, and since then, I'm the executive chef at the European Union Embassy. I also teach cooking classes, and the most important thing, I have a fat chihuahua named Giles. If you ever watch Buffy the Vampire, you get the reference. If you haven't, well, too bad. Enough about me. I want to thank everyone for subscribing and sharing the podcast. If you have any questions, my email is info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. Tell your friends all about the chickens we are turning and the dishes we are breaking. Find me on Instagram at turningchickensbreakingdishes or on the Facebook page, Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you want to support this podcast, you go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. Bye, y'all. Adios.